0: Titus 2 verse 1 for our reading. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love, and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved much wine, teaching what is good, so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort... And reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we, again, as we embark on a, a new day that you have created, that you have decreed for your own good pleasure, we throw anchor in your sovereignty and in your goodness. Father, thank you for as we read that the grace of God has appeared, Lord. Because if there's anything we as flawed men and every human that is in great need of, it is the grace of God. I thank you that your grace is to sinful men like myself, bringing us salvation. And Father, your grace is the daily need of all of us. And your grace not only is a forgiving, and a cleansing grace, but a transforming grace, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly. And so, Father, I pray that we would do so as men and that we would be encouraged. Father, I pray for all of us, all the various uh, battles, speed bumps before us, trials, the busyness, everything large and small, Father, that you would give us extra encouragement, extra grace, that we would look for the blessed hope, as we've been instructed here, looking for the appearing of Christ. And as we always have, one eye on the affairs of the world and and work and family and righteousness and the kingdom of God, that we would also have an eye that's looking to Christ, on that great day. In the meantime, Father, I pray for us as men. Thank you for this food. Thank you for bringing us safely. That we would be built up in the faith, and that. Uh, you would help me, and uh, things only be said which are encouraging to the men, and are rooted in your word. In the name of Christ, we pray, amen. All right, gentlemen, <clears throat> come on in. There's more people than I thought would be here. You guys aren't afraid of a little snow. Okay, we, uh, just, we need to spend just a minute or two finishing up uh, our uh, lesson on masculinity and the sovereignty of God. Masculinity and the sovereignty of God. If you don't have those notes, uh, maybe you can look over someone's shoulder. Masculinity and the sovereignty of God. So I, I just want to conclude um, that briefly. Do we... Does anybody know if we have extra notes for the for the sovereignty of God? Hey, good to see you, Andy. Um, so, Yeah, you want to check in just real quick? So I want to wrap up that lesson and just observe that we were talking about um, the sovereignty of God and how, you know, typically when we're younger in life, teen years, 20s, whatever it might be, for the most part, for most of us, life kind of revolves around us, revolved around us. Me, myself, and I, my sports, my activities. And that, and that sort of represents the uh, immature view of God, which is the Pelagian view of God. My free will, I choose. God's kind of a small God. It's kind of me, me here. And you know, if I, if I can fit God into my life, if it's convenient for me, well, I, I, might get, you know, I might give him the time of day now and then. But it's really about me and what I want to do. And God's kind of an appendage. But the God of the Bible, thirty-five, verse six, the true and only God. Uh, Psalm one, thirty-five, verse six. What does that say? Anybody remember? Jake, you got that? I saw you yesterday on Spring Gulch Road. You had a, you had something the size of a skyscraper in the back of your truck, man. <laughs> it's like I better pray for Jake. <laughs> that road was a little nasty yesterday, wasn't it? It was <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, and that was intense. I bet going up to Bar BC too was interesting. Psalm one thirty five verse six, whatever the Lord pleases, He does, In heaven on earth the sea in all deeps. And so, when we talk about free will, the only yeah, the only and then over there, the only uh, free will that the Scriptures talk about is in relation to God. And so, part of part of maturing, and this has just profound effects in our own lives as men, work, masculinity, marriage is to switching this and realize God is, the, God is at the center. God's to be at the center of life. I exist for Him. I exist because of Him. He doesn't exist for me. He doesn't exist because of me. Right? God existed first. In the beginning, God created Genesis 1. And so part of moving forward into a more um, uh, a correct Mature view of God is where these, we do the switcheroo here. I realize, you know what, I, I might have to change as I constantly have to do myself, being a sinful man, I have to change and, and realize God at the center, and God has created me to have my fulfillment, my purpose, my joy coming under His sovereignty and, and worshiping Him and existing for Him. And so... That's that we've been looking at, is been studying the sovereignty of God, um, and an important, a critical transition to make. Uh, and this is really is the fancy term we've been talking about, going for, from sort of a, a Pelagian, a Pelagian Arminian view of God. If you don't know what that means, not a big deal. You can ask your neighbor, neighbor, ask your neighbor later. Excuse me. Going from a Pelagian Arminian view of God, which sees God as you know, me choosing, I'm kind of him and I are in cahoots in many sense. Not all us believe that, but it's somewhat representative of that view, at least within the doctrines of grace. The maturians realize, you know what, God's at the center. God exists for His glory. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. God exists um, in His sovereignty, and I really am to exist for Him. And that's really where a man realizes his fulfillment and his purpose. And this has a billion practical helps, from marriage to work to my own thinking to discouragement to trials, and on and on. Okay, basic stuff. But so where we uh, we we finished in those notes? Number three. What page is that? Number three: the testimony of God's sovereignty from Scripture. Page five. five, On lesson nine: masculinity and the sovereignty of God. I'm not going to read all these. You guys can. Um, we have a lot to do this morning. You guys can uh, peruse this in more detail, but let me just mention a few things. So, by the way, what does the sovereignty of God be- mean? His absolute control over all events. Yeah, yeah. His his lordship over all things. His con- his control. His dominion. What else What else would you say about the sovereignty of God? His ownership. ownership of all things, very good. Mm-hmm. If there's is it possible for God to not be sovereign over something, whether it's a nation or a black hole or a cell in your body or a fish in the sea or any event, is that possible? It's not. right? You just the universe would not exist. As R.C. Sproul used to say, there's no maverick molecules in the universe, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So as we look at uh, number three, page five here on lesson nine, uh, letter A over God's Let's let the scriptures speak. Uh, and, and this is just so practical because it cuts us men down to size and realizes, helps us realize our place, that we're not God. Uh, we 're ultimately not in control uh, we 're not ultimately kings and lords over the universe that God is letter a over oh, smallest details proverb sixteen thirty three the lot is cast it 's like an old testament way of rolling the dice the lot 's cast into the lap but it 's every decision is from the lord matthew 10 twenty nine are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, for you're more valuable than many sparrows. What else is God sovereign over? Letter B, weather and geological events. That's practical for us. After it, a voice roars, Job 37. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. Psalm 29, 7, the voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. Okay, you get it. Letter C, God's sovereign over the animal world. Uh, that's practical for those those of you who hunt. You have a good day; it's God's grace. You have a bad day; God is sovereign. Psalm twenty nine nine: The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve. Letter D: God's sovereign over good things that happen to us. Uh, James 1.17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. How practical is that? Uh, G K Chesterton used to say the One of the worst moments for the atheist was when something good happens to him and there's no one to thank. We don't have that problem because God is sovereign. The God of the Bible is the true and the only God, and he's sovereign over every good thing. Letter E, the events of the nations. And remember, this doesn't mean that God is pleased with everything that happens, right? There's God's two wills. What are they? Not will, like leaving something to his... Ancestors, excuse me, to his uh, his offspring, but what happens? His what? His prescriptive will, like what God commands. His commands in Scripture are his prescriptive will, right? The Ten Commandments, commands in the New Testament, and decorative decorative will. Yeah, his prescriptive will. What happens is decorative will. What he allows, and he's not always pleased, right? So he's sovereign over the events of the nations. Psalm twenty-two. Verse 28, the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And again, sometimes people ask, well, if uh, they scoff at that, you, your God rules over the nations and why does he, why does he allow you know, wicked kings who don't believe in him uh, to, uh, to, to be on the throne and wicked presidents or whatever to do what they do? How do we answer that? We don't answer it. <laughs> Understanding is incapable of seeing what God is doing as for as it relates to His glory, regardless of what the circumstances exactly. are. Exactly, it's, it's presumptuous of us to um, reduce God to our level and try to put Him in a little box. That's exactly right. And often, as we see in history, God uses evil men, evil kings, evil times to further His His administration. And sometimes we won't see that in our lifetime, right? Because God isn't confined to our little, you know, to 80, 90, 100 years. God is thinking on a grand scale. And He will absolutely, Romans 8.28, cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. Romans 8.28. We might not see it this side of heaven, but we will see it, gentlemen. Absolutely. We will see it. Uh, War and outcomes. Proverbs twenty-one, thirty-one: the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but it's every victory belongs to the Lord. That's a helpful one. I mean, that's a helpful one for your life. None of the battles you face. We can prepare ourselves, whatever battle it is, some battle at work, a battle in relationships, a battle in this or that, but the outcome is the Lord's. But it's we don't presume upon God. We prepare, but it's up to God. Let G, government rule, and political rulers. Uh, Daniel 2.21, it's he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. So God is sovereign over what's going on in politics. Doesn't mean he's pleased with it. God is only pleased with the things that conform his commands, right? Essential to remember that. So we pray. We pray. Christ will return one day and it will be a global theocracy, that'll be the best thing, because Christ is perfect, perfect in goodness and love. Business success, letter H, that's a helpful one. Business success. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. That's not a verse to justify laziness. We just saw that we need to prepare the horse for the day of battle. But it's the idea that God is behind giving any success. It's vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labor, so he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Now, again, that's not saying it's, it's, it's a bad thing to work hard. It's saying it's a bad thing to work hard, totally trusting in yourself, self-trust, that everything is up to me, right? Where you kind of have this idea that, you know, you, you're, you're the ultimate determiner of what's going to happen in, in business and in work. We work hard. There's verses all over the scripture that say that. But ultimately, we go to sleep and we trust God, how this is going to work out. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. I don't have to talk to you guys about that. You're well acquainted. Uh, Our financial situations, letter I, the rich and the poor, have a common bond. The Lord's the maker of them all. Uh, Human decisions, uh, go down to Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Uh, Birth and death, God is sovereign over. Look in the middle there, Psalm 139.16. That's practical, Psalm 139.16. Your eyes have seen my unformed, su- unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. And that really puts God up at the top. You can, you can eat as much broccoli and you know do as many miles as you want on your goofy treadmill and all this stuff, but your days beginning to end are already decided by God. Does that mean live like a fool, live like an idiot? Nope, doesn't mean that. We don't presume upon God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty isn't something to be abused, respected. Nevertheless, we submit an understanding we're not God. We're not ultimately in control. Um, false signs, dreams, visions, and prophecies. That's an interesting one. Uh, Deuteronomy 13, kind of a complex passage. You, we can chat more about it later if you have questions but. Uh, Moses says this, the Lord, through the Lord, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, like a miracle, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And of course, the passage in First Kings 22, Micaiah says uh, where there are there's basically this is a time in Israel of total apostasy and there are many false prophets and Micaiah is one one of the few guys left one of the true preachers left therefore hear the word of the Lord he says I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all of the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left the Lord said who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-gilead and one said this while another said that then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord this is a demon and said, I will entice him. So this is one of the kings of Israel and Judah. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I'll go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. That's kind of a woke passage. So because there was so much hard-heartedness, pride among those who professed faith but didn't have sincere faith, God actually propagates and allows false prophets to increase and continue and deception. Well, how would we know what's true? You stick to the Word of God, that's how. Uh, Over what else is God sovereign? Letter M, the creation of the universe, Satan and demons. Letter O, punishment of unbelievers, evil and disaster. That's a tricky one. Letter P, Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day, I would encourage you to memorize this one if you don't have memorized already. Ecclesiastes 7.14 under letter O, the letter P, excuse me. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. God is sovereign over the hard days and the good days, good stuff and bad stuff. So what about that? How's that doctrine practical? Practical. There's popular theology out there that says, well, that your bad day you had that God was just kind of sitting along with you and wishing that didn't happen. That's a pagan view of God, mythical. That's an idol. What? There's no hope in the bad days if there is no sovereignty. Yeah. There's a purpose to that adversity that God can use. Very good. It's otherwise life just sucks. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. That's so helpful. Uh, and there's several other verses there that we, we quote as far as God's sovereignty. So, you know, hard days, hard stuff. If, if God is just down here, God and you are just down here, saying, shucks, I, I wish this hard day didn't happen, then we have no hope. And it's not that God is pleased with all the hard things again. He's only pleased with things that conform to his commands that are good, that are upright, that are righteous. However, knowing, okay, God is actually over, sovereign over that, that produces a hope, peace, um, rest, knowing that, okay, I might not be able to see, you know, that this might be just totally blacked out, the future. I'm not I'm not going to be able to see how this hard day is going to work out for good, but I know God is sovereign. I know he's in control. And maybe he's trying to teach me a lesson to grow in something, teach me to, you know, trust in him, things like trust, maybe uh to re- repentance. I need to I need to change in some area, whatever it might be. But I know I can have this hope, peace, and rest if He's down here alongside of me, thinking, "Man, I, I just I hope things go better." Then, then God's no more powerful than you. It's you and God just kind of hoping, rolling the dice, buying a lottery ticket, tripping over your shoelaces as you head into the next day. But if He is the God of Scripture, right? All right, I, the future might be you know like driving in, and you know I couldn't see more than you know, 50 yards maybe. Can't see it, but you, we know the future, hope, peace, and rest. And that's only possible in the Christian view of God, the classical Reformed view of God. That is only possible with a God who is sovereign. Travis. Uh, could, could you speak a little bit more to the idea that God only takes blood for yes, right. uh, decorative, or oh, sorry, this descriptive will like things that conform to righteousness. Because I'm just thinking of you know, the, the crucifixion, which is probably the greatest evil ever perpetrated, and the Bible says that it, that it was God's pleasure. to crush it. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, Isaiah 50, 53. So <clears throat> you're you're asking a question that's uh, it's a great question. And it's been uh, probed and wrestled with for you know centuries since god is since man has ever been aware that God exists uh, Joe wrestles with that a little bit, and I think what we can say you know I, I don't want to be like re- reductionistic or whatever simplistic, but I think we can say as far as that goes and you cited um go to acts two twenty three if you gentlemen would please acts chapter two verse twenty three so as it pertains to the cross um Acts 2 23. So you're asking, you know, and on the one hand, uh, Travis, is it Isaiah 53? Is it like 53 9? Can someone confirm that for me? Where it says it was, it pleased the Lord to crush him. What is that? Brother Todd, you got that? Brett, you got that? 53 10? Okay, so let's all go there real quick. Sorry, false alarm. Go to Isaiah 53.10. Brett, would you read that loud and clear for us? Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of the Lord to correct him. He has agreed. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his day the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Okay, thank you. So it's that first phrase we're concerned with. Some translations say, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Or it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And then you go to Acts 2.23. Let's flip over, flip forward to there. Acts 2.23. John, would you read that for this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. OK. So you see, there's some, there's some tension in there. This predetermined plan. Who predetermined the plan to crucify Christ? Yeah, God, the triune God. God the Father, in particular, is talking about. Um, and Peter is accusing them of being godless and wicked. What you did was evil, right? however, it pleased the Lord to crush him. What do we do with that? So on the one hand it pleased God the Father for for Christ to be crucified. it pleased the Lord for Christ to be crucified. It was a predetermined plan. what's that dog doing there? You move you out of the way, buddy sorry <laughs> so. Um, so the cross pleased the Lord, okay, Isaiah 53, and number two, it was predetermined by God. What is predetermined? If you predetermine something, what does that mean? Already decided. Already decided. Who already decided that the cross would happen? God, He's sovereign, and it pleased Him that it would happen, however it didn't please him, that what? What does that verse hint at? And maybe a few verses before and after, hint that was not pleasing. Yeah, man's sin in particular, what? Yeah. Men treating the incarnate Son of God with contempt and injustice. Okay? So, the, the Acts, not the book of Acts, but the Acts Of um, treating Christ with hatred did not please God. Okay? Why? Because God's will, Matthew 22, uh, 22, 39, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So is God like schizophrenic here or is he having a MPD, or? Well, Christ, was, <clears throat> Christ was obeying. He was being obedient and following the will of his Father. His yeah, very good. Is, yeah, he was walking in his man, essentially, whereas his man was walking against them. Exactly. Isaiah 53 says that his pleasure is not only in the crushing of them, but if he would offer himself, exactly. as will do so. Yeah, very good. So God the Father is looking at, so there's something that pleased him here. The hatred of wicked men did not please him. Okay, we can say that. God isn't pleased with sin, right? God is holy. Back at one thirteen, his eyes are too pure to even look on evil. Um, however, Isaiah, why can we say it pleased the Lord? Because Isaiah 53, the context of it is about accomplishing what? Yeah, the salvation, the forgiveness of his people, the atonement in particular, right? There's a substitutionary language all throughout Isaiah 53. For, he offered himself for, right? The Lord has laid uh, the iniquity of us all on him. So what pleased the Lord is, as you said, Ian, the obedience of Jesus going to the cross to accomplish forgiveness for sinners, that was in the heart and the pleasure of God from all eternity. It pleased Him to save wretches like me and you, if you believe in Him. Isn't that amazing? Just say law on that for a moment. You know, don't get too heady that you're too spiritual to rejoice. Right? Uh, praise God for that, that it would please Him to save men like us. Right? Why would that please God? I, I have no clue. Because it gives Him glory. He gives him glory when he just forgives and shows great mercy. Go ahead, Mr. Neal. It seems like uh, we're getting stuck in our human chronology. Right. Because there's this, our days, future. Right. Like God sees all of it and is sovereign. It did please the Lord to crush him in that moment, but that moment was part of justification. Exactly. And what does justification mean? Mm-hmm. Well, verse 11 says, you made many righteous. Yeah, Isaiah 53:11. Very good. So the saving plan of God pleases God. And, and again, it's just it whatever we say about God, if you're going to think rightly about the true God and not a totem pole or a rock or an idol, we need to say: God is a God who gets pleasure in, in salvation, in showing us mercy, in saving us. So that's one thing that gave him pleasure. And then the other thing that pleased God. In salvation is what Ian said the obedience of Christ to offer Himself as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us, for everybody who would go to heaven. At the same time, God isn't, you know, thinking, doggone it, that's great that people are treating my son like he's some gutter scraping and a piece of trash. So He's not pleased in that. How does that all work out? I don't know. I'm not God. I just know what God has told us in His Word. And who are you, O man, to question Him, as Paul says in Romans 9. So I, I don't know if that answers your question at all, Travis, but that's about all I know from Scripture what to say about the prescriptive and decorative will of God as it concerns the cross. I'm sure none of that is new to you. but. Um, anyone else want to add anything? Are we forgetting anything? Should we maybe nuance that a little more with scripture somehow or Verse thirty seven of Acts, right behind Acts two thirty seven. You know, Remind they, me what that says. If they were rejoicing in God's yeah. good pleasure to crush him, they would have said, Oh well yep. praise God, we crushed the Son. Yeah. But agreeing with God from repentance, they said they were pierced to the heart and said for others. Well. Exactly. So agreeing with the evil of it. Yeah, very good. Yeah, so, um, and that reminds us of Genesis fifty 20, doesn't it? Let's go there. Go back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 50. What a great subject, by the way. You know, this is, this is big boy theology, which is the most practical kind. Because everybody thinks about this, but not everybody, has, not everybody is able to answer from Scripture. But because our God cares for us, and because our God delights to reveal Himself to us, um, and loves us. He he wants to show us these things. Genesis fifty. Now the context. Remember the context of Genesis fifty. This is like this is like circa eighteen hundred BC. And uh, remember, there was a, a massive famine in the ancient East, all over the the ancient East. And um, the the Israelites, the Hebrews, were only about seventy people then. Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Uh, In an act of treachery, hatred, they hated Joseph, they they sell him as a slave to some Ishmaelites. He becomes a slave in Egypt, unjustly accused, you know, 20 years later, plus or minus. His brothers come to get food, they hear that there's food in Egypt. Joseph has been made like vice-regent, maybe prime minister of Egypt at the time, 1800 BC. His 11 brothers come, and they buy food from him, and he finally reveals himself and says, guess what, who I am? I'm Joseph. And so they're worried. The brothers are worried, man, that Joseph's going to kill us because we sold him, to, we sold him into slavery you know, 20, 30 years ago. And what does Joseph say? Genesis fifty, twenty. Dustin, would you read that loud and clear? Yes, sir. As for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day to keep my many people alive. Okay, so Joseph mentions what's called the doctrine of divine concurrence. Divine concurrence, and if you if, if you don't have this doctrine in your God, you got a serious problem. So divine concurrence means exactly what it said in Genesis fifty twenty. You have God. So God God means meant for the treachery that happened to Joseph for what? Good, OK? But his brothers, right? his 11 brothers, they meant it for what? OK, so you have meant as a word of intention. God is allowing that, that treachery to Joseph to play out. He, he, he's already ordained that good is going to come out of, it, out of it. He's predetermined. Good is going to come out of it. What good came out of Joseph being sold into slavery and being treated like trash? Salvation of, uh, well, I'm going to be more immediate. Yeah, right. So you have you have the nation. You have seventy Israelites are going to starve. Okay, up in Canaan, modern day Israel, they're going to starve. So, they sell him, he goes down into Egypt, he, he's in charge in Egypt, concocts this super wise plan to create, to, to set aside food for the whole like ancient East, the Fertile Crescent area, which is very unfertile. So, they come and the 70 people of Israel, this is, this is the people through whom Israel will come, and therefore through whom the Savior will come. They come down, they get fed, they don't starve to death. God, that's the good that God intends. The evil they intended, right, was to kill Joseph, Joseph's brothers. But God says, no, we're not going to do that. I'm going to take your plan to kill him and bring Joseph in charge so that the 70 people who are Israel, very, very small nation at the time, don't starve. So that's the immediate good. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 50:20. the doctrine of divine concurrence. Which says, two, two events with conflicting intentions, God will use them. Part of what the doctrine says, God will use them to bring about, bring about his good predetermined plan. And by the way, the whole world will operate like that. How do we know that? Because Jesus is going to return and fix everything and address all wrongs. Okay, If you don't have a, the doctrine of divine concurrence and your understanding of God, we we need to turn a wrench on that. Not because some man made that up, but because that's how the world actually is. And so the doctrine of divine concurrence is what happened at the cross. right? Predetermined plan, you were godless, God did great good out of the cross. So God is good at taking the wicked acts of men and using them for good now that doesn't mean we always see the good that's happening through it in our lifetime at this time however um, let's go to ecclesiastes 3. <laughs> ecclesiastes after the book of proverbs kind of right in the middle of your bible 3 10 and 11 i think it is So that Genesis fifty twenty, by the way, is Genesis fifty twenty is the Romans eight twenty eight sort of of the Old Testament, right? Romans eight twenty eight, God causes all things to work together for good. Um, Ecclesiastes three, Seth, you got that? Would you read that, please? Yes, please. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men, with which to occupy themselves he has made everything appropriate in its time okay that's good right there he's made everything appropriate in its time and the hebrew word probably is more the idea of beautifully woven he has made everything beautifully woven in its time and i think when we were studying through that passage a few years ago when we uh studied ecclesiastes verse by verse we observed that the small not small and insignificant but in the grand scheme of time the events of our lives, the events like Genesis fifty twenty, <clears throat> the hard stuff, the hard days in your life, <clears throat> they're like a single thread in one of these massive tapestries, right? If you, visit, uh, if you visit some of these old chateaus in France, I spent a chunk of my childhood just walking through them all, on a lot of the stone walls of these old castles they have huge tapestries. I mean, Floor to ceiling, you know, 30 feet tall and that way, like 50 feet with just ancient, intric- you know, hunting scenes, uh, dining scenes, forest stuff going on. And I mean, if you think about it, how big is a single thread in one of those tapestries? It's, it's like that. It's smaller than that, you know. And if you look at the back of these tapestries, it looks like chaos, There's Just threads everywhere. That makes no sense. This is a hard day. Why is this happening? This looks like stuff is just coming unraveled. You turn that tapestry around and it's this epic scene of, you know, the old French kings hunting deer in the forest with trees and stuff going on. It's incredible, these well-woven tapestry. That's kind of the idea of Ecclesiastes 3.10. He's made everything well-woven, beautifully woven in his time. You and I see like a thread right here. You know, when we're when something hard is going on in our life. Or we see a couple threads in the back of the tapestry, and it's very difficult. Now, we need to learn from it. I might need to grow in trust in God. I might need to grow in... I might need to grow in holiness. Uh, I might need to grow like in submission realizing just, hey, I'm not God. God's God. And God teaches us. God works good, even in our individual lives in these hard days. And you and I will see, if you go to heaven one day because you've believed in Christ, you and I will see that tapestry one day. You'll look at that tapestry. The cross will be at the center of it. But there'll be many other things, like Genesis 50-20 moments and moments in your hard days where you see, oh, that's what was going on there. And some of those moments you'll even see sooner than heaven. But a lot of them you won't. Which is why the Bible says, uh, what verse is it, Todd? We walk by faith, not, not sight. What does that mean in hard days? Flesh that out for us. We walk by trusting in God and not by our side because we can't see everything. We don't know God's full path. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. It's not blind faith, right? Your unbelieving friend will say, oh, well, you just have blind faith and, you know, no, 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 no. This is informed faith. The scriptures never commend ignorance or stupidity. Believe in something that's dumb with no reason and and no logic behind it. The scriptures never say to do that. The scriptures never commend mindlessness. The very fact that we have a book that's this thick, 66 books in it, tell us that. It commends a reasonable faith. In other words, okay, we have a God who's sovereign. We've seen in history how he does this divine concurrence thing, bringing good out of evil. How does that apply to me? Right here, street level, shoe leather. I'm having a hard day. I want hope, peace, and rest in that. I back up. I realize Ecclesiastes 3.10 says he's woven everything beautiful in its time, and I don't see it all. I will one day in heaven. So in the meantime, God, what do you want to teach me in this? And it's not always that I'm doing something wrong in it. I just need to grow in one of these things. I might be, but I might not be, but either way. And so I walk by faith, not sight, understanding those things. And It's very difficult to do, very difficult, especially when life gets really dark and hard. So can we apply divine concurrence to things like, uh, like the Holocaust? And, yeah, flesh that out, JB. Talk about that. Um, you know, you just see... <clears throat> you wicked, wicked men slaughtering millions of people, Yeah. Um, and it's hard to see God's goodness in that because, you know. Very hard. Because we're prohibited by facts that. that we can do, um, but we don't see God's ultimate plan in that. For, uh, it's, it's hard to see good. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and I appreciate you bringing that up. That's That's really getting real, you know. Um, the Holocaust or, you know, the killing fields or, or some of these just wretched events, Cambodia, some of these things, you know, with that, we we, we have to submit to God and understand God hates that evil. I mean, really, the Holocaust, were good. that was God's people, like Israelites, right? God loathes that. What good could possibly come out of that? There's some immediate good, you know, that maybe happened in people's lives. We don't know exactly, but a lot of it is we don't have a clue what good could possibly come out of that. In heaven one day, it'll make sense. And in the wisdom of God and the Godness of God, he's chosen not to reveal that to us right now. And some people will say, well, I refuse to to believe in a God like that. Well, you have a bigger problem. You have a bigger problem because now you believe in a fake God that can't save you. It might give you a little bit of comfort for a few years in this life, but when you exit this life, you're going to have a catastrophic problem because you've you've believed in a non-saving, non-existent, mythical God. So when you say, well, I can never believe in a God like that, someone says that, you know, that's like your, your, that's like your physician coming to you and saying, hey, you know, you, uh, you got this issue with your heart, and it's bad, real bad. But we got a surgeon, you know, down in Houston who can, who's good at like dealing with this issue. It's hard. It's going to be very difficult. Your physician, well, I can't believe in you, a physician like that. I can't believe that a problem like that exists with my heart. Well, that's not going to fix anything. This is real life that's before you. Uh, God is the true God. He's the real God. He's the only God. He's proven that. So refusing to believe in a God that you're uncomfortable with is like refusing to believe in a real physiological, say, problem you have with your heart that is actually there. It, It won't solve anything. And at the end of the day, we come back again to Ecclesiastes 3:10. God has woven everything good in his time, divine concurrence, and brothers, the cross. Cross. We'll go to 1 John 4. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, that towards the end of your Bible. All right? When stuff doesn't make sense, and often it won't. You know, that these, these scriptures that we're looking at are helpful for them doesn't make sense days doesn't make sense days it's not going to make everything go away it's not going to make the pain always go away no way the pain is part of the plan isn't it it's part of the part of God's plan but first john 4 reminds us of some just very helpful helpful truths first john 4 10 um, Jonathan would you read that Jonathan Robinson, first John four ten. Yeah. Loud and clear if you wouldn't mind. First John four ten. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. sent us to be the appreciation for our sins. Right there. So, struggling with these hard days and these hard things, it's so important that we remember that we have a God who is loving. How did He show that love? The propitiation for our sins. In other words, quenching and, and, and justly quenching and placating His own divine wrath through the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Paul said, to, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I came knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We want to keep that at the center of our crosshairs, right? Remembering that always. Trusting God. Okay. What else do we need to say about that? What other thoughts about that? I had a thought about Is that, Go ahead. So that oh my God, it's a big topic. Half minutes, we'll do our um, best right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going like back to like, hey, like Deuteronomy yeah. 13 1 through 3. Mm-hmm. And it seems like we're that's a weird passage, isn't it? And I've heard some other comments like, hey, we're not supposed to trust, or, yeah, or spend any time on them. But, yep, then I think about when we're talking about Joseph, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he had a few dreams, didn't he? Or he interpreted them, like what we're referencing as. God's sovereignty over Israel or actions Joseph took, those were all brought to Joseph through dreams of a yep. non-believer. Absolutely. Right. So like, how do you how do you reconcile? Yeah, great question. Yeah, how do we deal with that, gentlemen? That, you know, like uh, Pharaoh had a dream about the seven cows that ate up the seven, foretelling that there would be seven years of famine, the seven stocks of corn, an unbeliever, Nebuchadnezzar, um, same similar situation. How, how do we what do we do with that? The other um, was like, the, the wise men, like they were Yeah, the Magi who come from probably Persia to come see Christ. Dreams. Yeah, have dreams or visions. How, 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 does, how do we reconcile that with the fact that today, this this time in history, we're not to follow dreams at all? How do we reconcile that? Now we have the 66. 66- so, leading up to the close of the, the canon, yeah, what's the canon? Uh, the 66 books where God has determined that this is the final product of my revealed uh, will, and so leading up to that, that, God used all sorts of mechanisms, um, to very good, uh, inform. But now that we've got the, the Bible, um, we, God is not acting in that way because the, it's unnecessary. Very good. It all has to do with the completion of the scriptures. I'm not referencing like new revelation. I know you're not. No, I, I know you're not. Um, and it's a great question. I'm glad you asked, Brett. So, Okay. Here's the 66 books of the Bible, right? The canon. Canon is just a fancy name for like a standard of something that's completed. Um, Is it one end or two ends? Two ends is canon, right? Okay. I wasn't good at spelling and I still am not. Um, So, history over which God is sovereign. Okay. He's moving all things forward. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 is helpful for that. History is moving forward to this point where we have the 66 books of the Bible, which only of the 66, book, 66 books of the Bible can be said, all things sufficient, and Pastor Matt's a good one to talk to you about this. He's, he's doing a seminar at the ACBC conference on the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, sufficient for life and godliness. Okay. God is kind of moving history forward to complete the canon. And as Richard rightly said, I'm basically just trying to picture a terrible picture, but a picture of what Richard said. Things are being used. God is using things to complete this, to bring to a point where in this life, this side of heaven, we have this divine standard that God says is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. And things are happening that God is using, like you referenced helpfully, Brett, Dreams and visions. Okay, um, you you referenced um, the Joseph situation, Genesis thirty-seven to fifty. Um, Nebuchadnezzar and like Daniel two, um, um, even an axe. Joseph was told to marry with Mary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Matthew chapter one and two, right? You have you have all kinds of dreams and visions that God is using to complete the canon. To move history, redemptive history forward. I should say, I should say, redemptive history. Okay, to bring Christ in, to give His people the full canon, right? And you have other things like prophets who say, you know, thus, uh, thus says the Lord. Okay, and then just again, s- sort of like divine, a- 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 an inspirational way of d- divine concurrence where God uses Paul or Peter to write New Testament letters, like Ephesians, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Peter, John, 1st John. He's using all these things to bring this to completion as he progresses redemptive history. All these things are being dumped into the bucket of the canon that is complete. Okay, During that time, as Richard said, I got 40 seconds. During that, during this time of redemptive history, before this completion, God is using these things, right? These dreams, these visions to complete the canon, to further redemptive history. Now that this is complete, Right We know from Revelation that it is, and there's how do we know the Canon's complete? Take our Bibliology class. We study that in great, great, great detail. We have those notes. Uh, see Pastor Matt for those notes. How do we know the Bible is complete? There's not more books coming. Um, now that that is complete, we look to Scripture to tell us, like, what do I follow? the data that's coming at me in life, whether the news, a dream, a thought, a bird. If a bird's talking to you, you know, see pastor Matt for counseling. Um, other stuff, how do I what knowledge should I follow? And this is a this is a whole another topic of epistemology. Epistemology talks about how do I know what I know? What what knowledge I receive and reject? Right? And what's the hierarchy of knowledge in life? Experience, scripture, a ha- hunch. Scripture tells us now, throw anchor here, throw anchor here for things pertaining to life, eternity, and godliness, and salvation, and not here, dreams, visions, and hunches. You might have a cool dream, and then, wow, the thing happens. Great. What's for lunch? Y- you might you know, might say something years ago, and like, that thing happened. Neat. Do I want ketchup or mustard on my hot dog? I'll oh, have both. What's the next thing I need to do today? You know, that's neat if that happens, but we do not put that at a place of superiority epistemologically to guide us. We only are to rely on scripture, right? Because it's objective, it's, we know it's inspired, we know it's unchanging, we know it's authoritative, authoritative we know it's sufficient. And I'm out of time, way over time, mm, not way, but a little bit. Sorry if that does that help at all? Okay, and that's hard because man, there's some we want to be fascinated with dreams and there's cool stuff that happens and we have to resist, getting, you know, getting on a rabbit trail into a, going down a track that might not be helpful. And Deuteronomy 13, I think, actually merits this. He says God's actually testing you to see if you'll follow Him. Well, how do I know if I'm following Him? His word. <laughs> You could always be sure you're following God, you're believing God, you're doing the right thing, if you keep his word as your authority, whether life, heaven, hell, marriage, anything else. 2 Peter 1.19. What does it say? Um, Oh, yeah, about inspiration. Yeah, Yeah, very good verse. Well, it's in context of the vision. It is. Yeah, Peter actually says, "Even even when I was with Christ on the mountain, at the mountain of transfiguration, and saw his Shekinah glory, that's inferior epistemologically to this. Even Peter says that, which is a massive statement if you think about it. Is that kind of like people
1: say they hear God's
0: voice or they hear God talking Yeah. About I mean, the best way to hear God speaking is read the Bible on God. The only way, I would say. Right on someone's parade, it's to just ensure that I'm actually following God because there's a real Satan and a real spiritual realm and stuff happens. And it's not that Satan's under every rock, but might as well be safe and just follow God. And as a matter of fact, not just might as well, we must. Isaiah 8, 19 and 20, he says, if you have dreamers and visions and people hearing things, to the word of God, to the word of God, okay? Father, thank you for your word, Thank you for giving us the scriptures to guide us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, and we might have hard situations and the immediate answers might not always be in front of us, but we can trust you. We can dig a little bit in your word, and it is sufficient. So I I pray for all the men here this morning, Father, you would give them strength, wisdom, even joy in in life speed bumps to trust you as you show them your goodness, even today and beyond until we gather for corporate worship on Sunday. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.